Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's a problem in many states. Patients waiting a long time for mental health services in a place that's not really meant for them, the ER. I mean, can you imagine that happening with a heart condition? It's really inhumane. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll look at what's being done to solve this problem and how the opioid epidemic is changing how ERs work. We'll also find out how New England is reacting to President Trump's orders on immigration. Boston was here for me and my family. And for as long as I am mayor, I will never turn my back on those who are seeking a better life. We'll bring you a tale of gentrification and change in two city squares. And recognize this New England accent? That's what makes life. You work the land and you feed it and you take care of the land. The land takes care of your cows and the cows take care of you. That's why I, I was brought up. We'll explore a vanishing sound. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week's announcements and executive orders by President Donald Trump on immigration have worried many residents of New England, those here without documentation, and those who run so-called sanctuary cities. Our reporters have been covering this story as part of the New England News Collaborative series, Facing Change. Let's go first to Boston and WBUR's Shannon Dooling. One executive order calls for an increase in Border Patrol agents and expansion of detention space at the border, among other steps designed to beef up prosecutions of criminal immigrants. With the second executive order, Trump follows through with his pledge to strip federal funding from communities that are so-called sanctuaries for immigrants in the country illegally. That would include Boston, where local police do not detain or question anyone based solely on their immigration status. Mayor Marty Walsh took a swift and firm stance in response to Trump's order, saying that the city has been and will always be a safe place for immigrants, no matter their status. Boston was here for me and my family. And for as long as I am mayor, I will never turn my back on those who are seeking a better life. We will continue to foster trusting relationships between law enforcement and the immigrant community. And we will not waste vital police resources on misguided federal actions. Walsh says he's not intimidated by Trump's fiscal threats, even though the city has approximately a half billion dollars in federal revenue at stake. In fact, Walsh went so far as to open the doors to City Hall itself for anyone fearing deportation. That means if people want to live here, they'll live here. They can use my office. They can use any office in this building. Any place they want to use, they'll be able to use this building as a safe space. Just how much leverage city leaders will have in this head-to-head fight with the Trump administration remains unclear. But for the immigrants affected by these new orders, the fear is at an all-time high. That's Shannon Dooling reporting from Boston. Mayors of other sanctuary cities from Hartford, Connecticut to Northampton, Massachusetts, have said they'll push back against the orders. But then there's another immigration order halting refugee resettlement of people coming from several countries, including Syria. We've told a story about Rutland, Vermont, getting ready to welcome some 100 refugees from that war-torn country. 
Now it seems likely that that plan is on indefinite hold. But VPR reporter Nina Keck did meet with the first two Syrian families who came to live in that small city. Hazar and Hassam have barely spent a week in Rutland, but the couple was all smiles as we met in their host family's living room with an interpreter. They introduced their children, nine-year-old Layan and seven-year-old Muhammad. The couple asked me not to use their last names. They're new, they explain, and they want to be careful. I asked them what this last week has been like. Uh, At first, we came here and um, we were surprised by the very, very warm welcome by the people of Rutland. Um, Ashraf and the uh, mayor and Greg um, came and welcomed us. And since then, it never stopped. People are just welcoming us and um, asking, how are we doing and helping us in every way. The couple are in their mid-30s and had been living in Damascus until two years ago. Hazar has a degree in French literature, but says she wasn't working because the kids were young. Hassan, meanwhile, worked two jobs, as an accountant in the morning and as a sales representative for a medicine company in the evening. But they say their life in Damascus became unbearable. The children were exposed to a lot of terror and the sound of bombs and the sound of bullets and the the gunshots um, all day long and we were like hiding and ducking underneath um, uh, the windows and the tables um, all the time. Hassan leans forward and tells the interpreter they wanted to find somewhere safe. For your children? Yes. I have family and children. My family. The couple fled to Turkey, then applied for resettlement. That involved four separate interviews, two in Ankara and two in Istanbul, as well as multiple security checks. Then they waited. Both say that was the hardest part. They learned they were coming to America five days before they got on the plane. First, they were told they were going to Los Angeles, but at the last minute, that changed to Rutland. Hazar admits she was initially disappointed because she'd at least heard of Los Angeles. But now that she's met their host family, Greg and Maureen Schillinger, and their four children, she's grateful to be in Vermont. But then when they arrived here and they got hosted by um, Greg and Maureen, um, they've been very, very, very happy and they're a very wonderful family. Wonderful. <laughs> Lyanne and Mohammed haven't started school yet, but their parents say it'll happen soon. The children sit quietly until 11-year-old Michael Schillinger sets up a pair of mini hockey nets in the kitchen. Soon, all three kids are playing hard in their stocking feet. Greg Schillinger watches from the nearby dining room. Kids, he says, have a way of simplifying politics. So often people talk about it in terms of, of policy or abstract idea and you know and my question is well how many of these people do you know um i know four of them um and it's a a loving mother and a a caring father and two kids who just love to play games hazar and hassam say they still have close family back in syria which is hard So I try to call them as much as I can, but most of the times they don't have electricity, so it's really hard to get a hold of them. When I bring up President Trump's plans to halt resettlement for Syrian refugees, Hazar nods. She's been checking her phone to see posts from friends she knows are waiting to resettle.
Looking up from her phone, she says through her interpreter, you can't imagine what it's like. Some of these families have been waiting three, four, five years, only to have everything stop overnight. That's Nina Keck reporting. We'll be following how the administration's immigration orders affect New England's rapidly growing immigrant communities as part of our series, Facing Change. If you break your arm and go to the emergency room at your local hospital, chances are you'll get medical care right away. But if you have a severe mental health crisis, it could be days or even weeks before you get a hospital bed in several New England states. Connecticut has been working to clear a backlog of patients waiting in ERs for a placement and treatment. It's a problem in Vermont, too, where inadequate mental health staffing means long waits in a place that healthcare professionals say is the worst setting for those patients. Reporter Jack Rodolico has been looking into this problem in New Hampshire and what the new Republican-controlled statehouse there might do to solve it. This past October 30th, Andrew Dixon went to the emergency room at Frisbee Memorial Hospital in Rochester because of a mental health crisis. He then spent 13 days in that emergency room. As you listen to his father, John Dixon, describe that time, realize Andrew did not commit a crime. So during those 13 days, he was in a 12 by 12 room. There was just a bed and a chair. Uh, There was a guard outside the door. He didn't understand entirely why he was there, and it just kept going. John Dixon did what he could to keep his son calm. Andrew is an artist. So I brought in some art supplies. So he was doing, did watercolor pens, uh, chalk and uh, pastels and things. John Dixon says his 22-year-old son suffers from both a mood and a thought disorder. He brought his son to Frisbee's emergency room because on that day he was aggressive and delusional. Emergency departments are often the doorstep to New Hampshire Hospital, the state's psychiatric hospital in Concord. Andrew Dixon was eventually admitted there, but on any given day, there's an average of 28 people with acute mental health symptoms waiting to get in. And that number has been climbing. Sue Ellen Griffin is the president of West Central Behavioral Health. It is certainly symbolic of the fact that the system is broken in the state of New Hampshire. And so my concern is that it becomes the norm And so it doesn't rise to the crisis that it really is. Some legislators, including Senate Majority Leader Jeb Bradley, say the state needs to spend money to help these people. And it is. New Hampshire Hospital recently added 10 beds after cutting dozens over 20 years. The state's also dedicating $30 million to let people get mental health care outside of hospitals. That's to comply with a class action settlement. But here's the big problem. Fixing the state's mental health system is like pressing down on the accelerator of a really old car. Despite all the energy we're burning, it'll take a while before we get up to speed. Until then, Ken Norton, the director of New Hampshire's chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, he says patients who are delusional or suicidal will be waiting for medical care. I mean, can you imagine that happening with a heart condition? It's really inhumane. Norton sees one of his jobs as poking policymakers reminding them that on some days, 50 people, including children, are stuck in emergency rooms in a mental health crisis. Jeffrey Myers, the commissioner of the state's health department, has been trying to better understand who exactly those people are. He says the data shows about half have already been treated for mental health needs, usually by their local community mental health center. Myers wants all those providers to start communicating better. So that when they experience a mental health crisis or problem, 
um, they can be treated directly by the community mental health center as opposed to showing up in the hospital ED. Those mental health centers say they're struggling to hire staff amidst a statewide workforce shortage, and it doesn't help the state hasn't increased Medicaid rates since 2006, so wages at those centers just aren't competitive. All this speaks to something everyone interviewed for the story agrees to. New Hampshire may be spending new state and federal money on mental health, but we lack a vision for where we're going, in part because we're still reacting to past budget cuts, an expensive lawsuit, and now an opioid addiction crisis. John Dixon says he's looking to a new governor and legislature for leadership. I have to be optimistic. My, my son has been given a diagnosis that is a lifelong diagnosis. And so long as people are stuck in a guarded room without treatment for weeks, Dixon says the state isn't doing enough to help the people it's legally obligated to protect. That's Jack Rodolico, the health and science reporter for NHPR reporting. He joins us now. Jack, welcome back to Next. Good to be here. We've heard about this in, in other states, in Connecticut, when there was recently a crisis with wait times like this. I was told by many doctors that you almost couldn't engineer a worse place to put someone in that mental state than a busy, loud hospital mm-hmm. emergency room. Yeah. Most people have been to an emergency room, right, whether you broke your finger or needed stitches or something. I mean, they are awful. Pl- I mean, they're, they're awful places to be stuck. I've been stuck in emergency rooms with family members. I mean, it feels like purgatory when you're stuck in the emergency room, right? I mean, the doctors are do- and nurses are doing the best that they can. They're dealing with a lot of critical things at the same time, but it's a ton of waiting. I mean, you could wait hours just to come in for a simple problem. Again, you go back to what is it like to be in a state of severe depression or severe psychosis and also be stuck in this sort of purgatory of an emergency room for days or weeks? I can't I I personally I mean, I can't even really imagine it. In some cases, they're dealing with this this other backlog problem of people coming in either addicted to opioids or suffering an overdose of opioids. How are they responding to this crisis? Well, so I spent time in Catholic Medical Center in Manchester. Um, It's a large hospital in New Hampshire's largest city. They do a little bit of everything. They have a couple specialties, but it's kind of your classic big city hospital. Um, And and they had um, in New Hampshire last year, there were about 6,000 people who went to emergency rooms with um, opioid addiction and and perhaps another symptom. a thousand of those people went to Catholic medical center. So they see a lot of opioid addiction in their emergency room. And, you know, the problem is a hospital can't cure addiction. They can treat the symptoms. So they've gotten better at treating the most common symptoms, dealing with people who have had an overdose, who possibly have been given Narcan in the field um, and then need to recover in the hospital. They also increasingly have people with very severe infections from using dirty needles. Um, And so they've gotten more comfortable in a way with diagnosing those problems, treating those problems in the short term. But, you know, they also have a revolving door. They, they, you know, they, they see people leave and then they see those people come back with the same problems. One of the things that they're doing that's innovative is, and this is true across New Hampshire, is hospitals are trying to communicate more with uh, treatment centers and EMTs and mayors and law enforcement because they want to create 
a continuum of care. So for example, a Catholic medical center, they're connected with uh, treatment specialists. So if they've got someone in their emergency department who says, yeah, I might be here because I got into a car accident, but I recognize that I'm addicted to heroin and I want some help, the emergency department doctor can call across town and an addiction specialist can come in you know, within an hour and they can do intake and they can say, okay, when you leave this emergency room today, I'm going to help you with your next steps. So, so that's a positive development. The, the hospital recognizing we can't cure this problem here. It's got to be a community-wide effort. And for the patients that come in that do want help, um, we're going to try to connect them with, with the help once, once they leave our doors. Jack Rodolico covers health and science for New Hampshire Public Radio. Jack, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Coming up, a tale of two city squares, Harvard and Eggleston five miles and worlds apart, but facing some of the same challenges. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, an ongoing battle over the future of Harvard Square is heating up again. At the center of the latest controversy is the historic Abbott Building at 5 JFK Street. It houses the world's only curious George store, and it's also the former home of NPR's Car Talk. Yeah, the Dewey Cheatham and Howe sign is still up in the window. The developer that bought the Abbott and its two adjoining buildings last year for $85 million plans to turn them into a mall. But the mollification of the square started decades ago. Long-term residents are worried that Harvard Square has become so commercial that it's losing what makes it special. Now, about five miles south, a historically Latino and African-American neighborhood called Eggleston Square is experiencing rapid gentrification. Residents in the city are mulling over and sometimes butting heads over how much affordable housing to require and what the business mix will look like. So today, a tale of two squares. I'm joined by Louie Cronin. She grew up in Harvard Square and worked there as a producer for Car Talk. Her first novel, Everyone Loves You Back, is set in Cambridge. Also joining me is Luis Cotto. He's the executive director of the nonprofit Eggleston Square Main Street. For years, he was a community activist in Hartford, Connecticut. Louie and Luis, welcome to Next. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to start with you, Louie, and I'd like you to describe... Harvard Square, but not the Harvard Square that you grew up in or the one that you've known for so many years. Describe Harvard Square right now through your eyes. Oh, boy. I mean, really, it feels just like a mall. Your first impressions are mall stores, and it's that sort of heart-sinking feeling of, oh, God, here's a Gap, here's a Ann Taylor, all the same stores that you see in a mall. And that's not the Harvard Square that you that you knew for your whole life. What, what was that Harvard Square like? The Harvard Square I grew up in was this totally eccentric place where there were stores that you never found anywhere else that were completely different. Like sometimes they were really expensive, but they were eccentric. There was the drugstore that had this world-famous perfume counter and sort of became more of a perfume store. And there was antique stores, a head shop. Also, there were bookstores on every corner. There were so many bookstores there. And there were cheap places for students to eat. And my dad owned a restaurant that was like a student bar kind of place. And it was just an eccentric, interesting place. 
Luis, I want to ask you about the square where you work, Eggleston Square. Maybe you can describe what, what the square is like right now, the Eggleston that you work in. Sure. Eggleston Square is a micro-neighborhood in, in Boston that straddles um, Jamaica Plain and Roxbury. It has its name because when there was an elevated orange line down Washington Street, it was a major hub stop. That came down in 87, and now the uh, Southwest Corridor houses the orange line that goes all the way up to Forest Hills. The Eggleston Square that exists now and has ex- existed in its current state for about about two decades is a hyper-local retail mix, basically servicing the immediate residents. So we have your fair share of just like ethnic restaurants, in this case it's Dominican, so a lot of Dominican restaurants, you know, the pizza place, and then you have the Chinese food takeout. We do have one outlier, which is a wonderful starfish market that everybody is jealous of. It's a regional destination for people, and a lot of barbershops and salons and nail salons. But um, again, that tends to to get more of a regional, a regional crowd. But the population is of color, um, mostly Latino, African-American, and uh, it's a good mix of 40, 30, 30, I would say, Latino, uh, mostly Dominicans, African-American, and white. And then the white is slowly growing as Eggleston mm-hmm. becomes um, more gentrified or more uh, attractive to people. Talk about that, that idea of gentrification and what it means to Eggleston Square, both, I suppose, Luis, in the in the positive and in the negative connotation of that? You know, gentrification, everyone, everyone has their own definition, but uh, it's the changing of a neighborhood and mostly caused by an influx of more affluent population. And, and normally you'll see this in big cities. It equates to displacement of a poorer of color population. And, and what we see, what what we're seeing in Eggleston is, you know, the consequence of that is is higher rent prices, which um, has be, have become astronomical. So, what you'll see the primary architectural style in Eggleston and most of Boston is the triple decker, and uh, you'll have a triple decker that has two bedrooms on the first floor, three bedrooms, three bedrooms, and those used to be family apartments. Mm-hmm. And what you see now is that. You know, you have a three-bedroom, they'll go for upwards of a 2400 because you'll get three working adults because that's the only way they'll be able to afford that. Um, but if you think of that density in the neighborhood that's built a lot of triple-deckers, you know, in a city that doesn't do parking bans in the winter, mm-hmm. you know, how many, you went from three families, possibly two cars, to eight adults possibly four cars, three cars in this, you know, very concentrated neighborhood. And that density and the the traffic and the parking, everything that goes with that is severely affected. It it sounds like a a problem both of gentrification in the sense of local people being priced out of the neighborhood, but it also seems to be, Luisa, a quality of life issue for those who are there. If you have this hyperdensity with a lack of parking and many people who are living together but not related, it really does change the nature of a place, and it almost feels, with those prices and with that type of density, a little bit unsustainable. I- am I reading that right? I don't know if it's unsustainable. You'll, you know, you're in Boston, and you'll always be able to find a working adult who who can afford $800 to, to rent with people, and um, you'll see a lot of turnover, but uh, 
there are wonderful people, wonderful artists who are, that's the only way they're able to make ends meet, live with four or five other people. And then as long as you can get those people to, to buy into the vision of a grander community, you can make really wonderful stuff happen. L- Louis, can you talk about that issue of affordability and how that has changed Harvard Square? I mean, it's not just about the Ann Taylors and the mall stores, as you say, coming in, but it's become a, a very expensive place to live as well. Oh, yeah. I lived within walking distance of Harvard Square. And when I first moved there, like Luis says, there were lots of artists and writers who lived around. And in fact, there was a building down the street from me that they said, oh, that's the writer's building. And I lived there for like 18 or 19 years. And during those years, I watched one writer after another be priced out of that building. And, you know, there would be new people coming in who were just much more affluent. They always had a designer dog with them. You know, it was it changed the tenor of the neighborhood. And the other thing it did was in terms of while I was living there, the pressure you felt to keep up was really difficult. Like I I would go out and mow my lawn and people in my neighborhood would come over and say, I'll lend you some more equipment if you'd like to trim back those bushes, or people giving me gardening and landscaping advice and stuff because they wanted us to keep it up better. It was incredible pressure. It makes you feel really disengaged from the neighborhood and more and more like you're being squeezed on all sides. Louise, in in Eggleston Square, with more people coming in from the outside, because it's a it's a desirable uh, neighborhood. You see more gentrification, more white residents. Are you seeing any tension between uh, the Dominicans, the African-Americans who've lived there for, for decades, and some of the newcomers who are coming into the neighborhood? I've seen tension, but I got to tell you, in the three years I've been there, not as much as one would think. I, I could probably name the times that it's been in my face, you know, on one hand. Um, I actually had one person as I removed the beer can from a merchant's a merchant's sill and asked him, like, you know, it was in a brown paper bag and said, you got to take this elsewhere. The guy said to me, you know, you guys come from out, outside and, and <laughs> tell us what to do. And I'm looking at him going, did you just call me a gentrifier? <laughs> but, um, but no, I think, uh, again, part of our part of uh, what we do at Eggleston Square Main Street is create these community building opportunities for people who otherwise don't know each other to come in one space, whether it's uh, poetry, whether it's music, whether it's uh, film nights. And one thing we try to always do is say beforehand or at the intermission, if you will, just introduce yourself to someone you, you otherwise don't know. You know, people get into their silos and they might not know the Dominican family, you know, two houses down. Another tension I want to ask you both about, and maybe, Luis, I'll start with you, is this idea of of preservation versus progress, right? You want to find some things about a community that you want to preserve, whether or not it's the the mix of different ethnicities and nationalities who live there, restaurants, stores, things that people in the neighborhood can can afford and love, but then also some sort of progress so that you are making the streets safe and clean and fun for people visiting from all over. Talk about striking that balance with the organizations you work with and and how you view that idea of of preserving a place while still wanting it to move forward and and be better every day. It's a great question. Eggleston Square and, and JP is going through a corridor study zoning process right now. 
most of the parcels along Washington Street are light industrial. So you'll see a lot of garages and empty spaces that were, you know, light manufacturing. So we're in the process, I think, in the next five years of seeing a lot of building and a lot of uh, new retail opportunities. What we don't want to see, to go to your question, is that filled with all what you just termed as the progress businesses. I don't want to wake up one day and see that you can point a line, draw a line between where they are, right, and then where, you know, we are and where they are, whether Mm. it's preservation and progress. So I think looking at a mix of businesses where it's sprinkled and then have newer businesses so that everybody, you know, everyone who would go to, I don't know, the taqueria, you know, would also flow to the barbershop and and or the Dominican restaurant. So that's something we're kind of very intentional about, making sure that when there are new developments that current businesses have an opportunity to expand if they if they want. And do you have to, because I was thinking about this with Harvard Square, the new development they're proposing, it's going to be a mall, right? And, right? and they're going to keep the facade, which is good. But what I think they need to do is they need to keep some of the iconic stores that have managed to survive that say Harvard Square, that say this right. is special, you know, like the Curious George store. One, you know, it's the only one in the world, and it's very Harvard Square, and it's a great place. But it's like, how is it going to afford it? Like, right. how are you going to make it so that those smaller businesses can afford Eggleston Square? Well, those in Harvard Square, you're looking at about 35 to $40 a square foot over there and these new developers who bought that building and the two adjoining it paid about $85 million. I have a nine-year-old boy. The Curious George store is like the only thing he knows. Um, That and the sand park at the Common, right? At the Cambridge Common. But that is slated in the new design to be gone and it's going to be an elevator and stairs. When you pay that much and you're looking to do a total gut rehab, what's going to be the end, the end uh, possibilities for, for local independent businesses? But, and that's one of the most interesting things about studying squares in, in Boston and Cambridge or all across the, the cities and towns of New England is that they're meant to be places where people live and where people shop and visit the destinations and also where people work. And you have to take all of those things into account. I guess I'm wondering, Louis, about about that that mix of ideas about what a Harvard Square and Eggleston Square should look like. Where should it all come from? Because you have to honor those people who who live there and call a community home. I suppose you have to honor people who are going to bring $85 million to want to redevelop something. But it, it means so many things to so many different people. How do, you, how do you decide on the future of something that has all of these competing interests at, at, at stake? You know, the city itself or the community itself has to say, this is who we are and this is what's important to us. It has to be mindful. Because if you just let the market determine it, the market will just go for as much money as possible. And if you just let maybe the people who are there, they will certainly vote for it, like, you know, keep our rent low, keep this low. So, you you know, I think it has to be a sort of partnership, but done by the city itself. I, I don't know if you do things like, 
you know, a progressive city steps in and says, we're going to figure out a way to subsidize Curious George. Cambridge is in the enviable position of being a wealthy, wealthy city, and it should be investing in preserving what makes it cool, what makes it Cambridge. And I think you're seeing some evidence of that with a with the kiosk, because the kiosk yeah. is at risk of, of being gone, the historical kiosk right in a Harvard Square, and uh, they've delayed any any selection of any developing group just so they can have more options, more community-led options of what can happen with that. And I think that's what um, my answer to this question is, you know, each square has to see who in spirit is their family, right? So like Harvard Square is is a Cambridge treasure. So a vision should be that Cambridge, both at the municipal level but also with its residents, gets to say this is what we want our Harvard Square to look like. To look like. Similarly, Eggleston Square is hyper local. It's not regional. So, mm-hmm. so the people in the immediate community. If I was to be asked what a vision would be, my vision would be an education process amongst the local community to help guide the vision for that neighborhood, and not have a reactionary process where you're you're reacting to a developer's vision of what they want to do when the bottom line is, you know, money. Luis, you mentioned that you walk a couple blocks to to Harvard Square. You live in Cambridge, right? Yes, I, <laughs> I um I live in Central Square, Cambridge. Yes, we've been there for going on five years now. And, and what's what's Central Square like these days? I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of changes there since since I lived in Boston back in the early '90s. I'm a big fan of Central Square. I love the mix of uh, money, and by money, I mean you'll have like a thrift store next to the dance complex next to a jazz place next to mm-hmm. you know the the check cashing place similarly i i have to admit that i like i didn't feel community until i started working at eggleston walking wow. the neighborhood and seeing families playing dominoes outside seeing a man playing a guitar in the porch and you know and i asked him if i could sit down he said sorry he offered me a beer not to say no one's kind in Cambridge, but it's just different. And so, Louis, you you grew up in in and around Harvard Square. You wrote a book about about Cambridge. Where do you live? <laughs> I live in Jamaica Plain, <laughs> <laughs> and I actually was priced out of Cambridge. I went over to JP because I had friends living in Jamaica Plain, saying it's more affordable. So, in a way, I'm part of the gentrifying problem of of Jamaica Plain, because I came over with Cambridge prices in my head, and then I saw J.P., and I was like, great. Do you feel the sort of sense of community there that that Luis was talking about? I do, but it's going. I used to feel it, like I've been in J.P. now for about 10 years, and when I first got there, there was such a, a feeling of community and the neighbors, you know, we spoke to one another. It was very, very diverse. And it's totally changed in 10 years. Like, I used to be very good friends with my next-door neighbor. And he left. And they put in three condos, three townhouses. And they each went for near, nearly a million dollars. To the point of these condos coming into the Eggleston Square area, Luis, I know that the city of Boston has talked a lot about wanting to maintain affordability for neighborhoods like this. Do you think that they're, that they're serious about this, that they're really making an effort to try to keep, keep it affordable? 
I do. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Sheila Dillon, who's the chief of, of housing in the city. But I think uh, we're dealing at Eggleston with the theory of supply and demand, mm-hmm. that the triple-deckers are so high because there's not enough, there, there are not enough units. So how can we get more units to balance that? And then within the new developments, make sure there's a healthy mix of, of affordability. Mm-hmm. And Jamaica Plain has been at the forefront citywide of pushing for 20% affordability. They've rarely gotten it, and there right now is a huge movement for this new planning study to push the city on its affordability. The mayor doubled down on their 13 15% affordability last winter, but the city is doing some really um, interesting, innovative things to make sure that people who are displaced are first in lottery to get something in Eggleston, and they're putting incentives in for developers who buy market rate spaces and promise to keep it affordable. So I do believe that the city, you know, that they want to practice what they preach. I just wish the base was a little higher. Louis Cronin works for PRI's The World. Her new novel set in Harvard Square is called Everybody Loves You Back. Louise Coto is the executive director of Eggleston Square Main Street. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank Thank you you so much. Louie and Luis joined us from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Now, since we're talking about interesting, diverse places, hope you can check out columnist Susan Campbell's story at nextnewengland.org. She's trying to help a young Connecticut couple find a diverse neighborhood to call their own. Check it out. Coming up, the New England accent that time forgot. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of housing and homelessness. When you think about the accent of New England, what comes to mind? Maybe it's a guy from Southie in Boston, or maybe it's, it's this guy, Doug Damon, who we recorded on Shebig Island just off Portland, Maine. One bitterly cold night, Don heard a racket down by the cow barn. Don quickly buttoned her coat and went right out the back door towards the barn. But that Yankee accent doesn't stretch across the region. In fact, rural parts of places like Vermont have a unique accent of their own. And like so much regional culture, those accents are fading. The podcast from Vermont Public Radio, Brave Little State, explored what makes the Vermont accent. And co-host Alex Keefe is here to tell us what they found. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, John, for having me. So your quest for the Vermont accent started with a question from a listener who wanted to know where this accent came from. What sparked her curiosity in the first place? Yeah, our our question asker for this story is a woman named Erin Creeley. Uh, She lives in St. Albans, which is up in northwestern Vermont. And she moved here several years ago from her native New Hampshire. And she noticed a thing that maybe you've noticed if you've moved to a new place. People sound a little different. And she came across this PSA from the Vermont Agency of Transportation. And it was about uh, snowplows, about winter driving safety. But it kind of piqued her curiosity. And I think you can hear why. Uh, Here's a clip from it. So how were the roads this morning? In just two miles, I had seven people off the road. It takes time for that salt to work, and that's what people don't understand. I'd say the safest place to be is behind that snowplow. You need a good set of snow tires, not all seasons. If our trucks are out there uh, plowing and salting, you need to slow down. It's better to get there late and get there alive. 
I think it's about time we head back out. This winter, slow down and be safe. It's probably some pretty sound advice about winter driving safety. But the other thing that Aaron, our question asker, heard there was this range of Vermont accents. And this got her curious about why there would be different Vermont accents and where they came from and and how they're changing. So, So how is the Vermont accent different from the way people talk in, I don't know, say, New Hampshire or the rest of New England? Full disclosure to start with, I am a flatlander from the absolute flattest of flatlands. I grew up outside of Chicago, so I do not pretend to be an expert in the nuances of different uh, New England dialects. But we did talk with someone who is. Her name is Dr. Julie Roberts. She's a linguist at the University of Vermont. She's been studying the Vermont accent for decades. She says, for one, you very rarely hear people dropping their R's like they might in other parts of New England. So, you know, the Pakyaka and Harvard Yacht. I can't do it very well, but you know what I'm talking about. That doesn't happen so much in Vermont, though it used to. Um, To get a good idea of what it sounds like, she shared us some tape from a guy named Fred Fletcher. He's a farmer who lives in northwestern Vermont, and he gave us permission to use this tape from an interview that Dr. Roberts did with him about a decade ago. If you could take a listen, I think you can get a pretty good sense of the Vermont accent. We had a good-sized farm, 30 cows, and had two pair of horses, and, you know, had 50 head of cattle, total probably, and I think that's what makes life. You work the land and you feed it and mm-hmm. you take care of the land. The land takes care of your cows and the cows take care of you. Julie Roberts, who interviewed him, said part of the reason he's so special is because hearing him talk is like hearing the way someone might have talked in Vermont, you know, decades ago. And part of that is because rural accents, and Vermont's is a rural accent, thrive on isolation. So here's a guy who worked on a farm in rural Vermont for much of his life. The linguist told us he'd taken one vacation in his life. Um, And that's how rural accents sort of stay alive. But there was a couple interesting parts about that that I wanted to flag that you might have heard. The the cows, I can't say yeah, exactly the... <laughs> right, but that's that's one trait of the older school Vermont accent, if you will, the long ow sound. Also, there's a long I sound. We heard him say life kind of instead of life. And you hear that with other words. Instead of fight, someone will say fight. Or uh, instead of kite, it would be kite. Um, so those are some of the big traits of the the older Vermont accent that are kind of fading. Um, but one of the biggest ones that is still around that I want to point out is this thing called the glottal stop, which uh, you yes. hear. You know the glottal stop? You're familiar with this? <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> and, and the way we hear that, that's a fancy word. Uh, people here might call it uh, dropping their T's. So the state we live in is not Vermont. It's Vermont. And in the winter, to stay warm, you wear mittens instead of mittens. And running down the center of the Green Mountain State are not the Green Mountains, but they would be the Green Mountains. I don't have a glottal stop, so that's just me exaggerating. But we do have some tape from people who do have glottal stops, and they could probably do it a little bit better than I can. She was frightened that something happened to her favorite cow. Frightened that something happened to her favorite cow, Violet. Get a flashlight and a pair of mittens, she said. Get a flashlight and a pair of mittens, pair of mittens, she said. So the reason I know about the glottal stop, Alex, is that is a defining characteristic of the Connecticut accent. I'm based here in Hartford. I've been living here for almost 25 years. I'm not an expert by any means. But in Connecticut, if you ask somebody to define the Connecticut accent, they'll say the town of New Britain, because they say New Britain, Britain. Or, or they'll say mitten or kitten, which is something that's very definitive here in Connecticut. And I didn't know it was part of the Vermont accent. Is it? Is there a reason why it exists in parts of Vermont so strongly still? 
the thing I learned about studying accents that seems to carry on to many of them is it's hard to tell why certain things happen when you study an accent because accents are unconscious, right? You don't think of having an accent and say, oh, it's time to put on my accent. It's not like a language where you can switch and start to speak it. So when subtle changes happen in accents, according to the linguists to whom I spoke for this story, you don't necessarily know why it happened. What we do know, according to Julie Roberts, the linguist from the University of Vermont, she had studied these old tapes that were recorded in the 30s, which we can play in a little bit here. Um, And she said that in the old school Vermont accent, you know, going on 80 years ago, people didn't have the glottal stop. They weren't dropping their T's. But then she heard some parts of the tape uh, where younger people around the 30s were starting to drop their T's, but it's kind of unclear why. One thing that she hypothesized is that it's easier to say, and human beings tend to do things that are easier for them physically in the long run. I mean, if you if we sit here and say New Britain or New Britain or Vermont or Vermont, it's easier to say it without a T. Your tongue doesn't have to touch the roof of your mouth. So maybe sort of the evolution is to, to speak in a way that's actually easier for us. That was what Julie Roberts told me, but she says the big caveat is you never know exactly why. These are just things that you're thinking about when you're trying to figure out why dialects change. So for your podcast, you tracked down one of the guys that was in this video, this PSA that we heard earlier, the one that kind of fascinated your listener. What did you learn from him? His name is Gerald Kinney. He's a lifelong Vermonter. He was raised by lifelong Vermonters. His family's been here for generations. He lives in in Randolph, which is in East Central Vermont. Gerald says he's been doing some genealogical research, and he found that his family came to Vermont from the British Isles, Ireland, Scotland, and England, but through like Halifax, Nova Scotia, places like that. And he hypothesized maybe some of what we hear as the current Vermont accent was a remnant of these British accents of yore. Later on, I was digging through some of this tape that these linguists recorded in Vermont back in 1934, and I came across this fascinating piece from a woman named Mrs. Emma Ball. She was, I think, in her 80s when this tape was recorded back in 1934. Uh, Here she is talking about her own lineage. And my grandfather Powers was, they claim, was Irish. They tell me there's Irish about us, and I know there is, and the twist of my tongue. One thing that I I learned in talking to linguists is how you feel about the place where this language came from. Clearly, Mrs. Ball had some connection that she held on to from Ireland or Scotland, and she spoke like this. That was just one way that we saw the sort of Irish-Scotch heritage come into Vermont. But the the waters were a little muddier in trying to figure out whether it still has an effect on the present-day Vermont accent. So, Alex, what type of Vermonters tend to have the strongest Vermont accents? Well, like most accents all around the country, Julie Roberts told me you tend to find the strongest accents in working class Vermonters, and the accent tends to soften the more educated a person becomes. Interestingly, she also says the accent tends to be stronger in men. This is what she had to say about that. In rural areas where the accents tend to be somewhat stigmatized, um, women tend to use less of um, use them less. And I think probably some of that has to do with Women um, tend not to be farmers. They therefore sometimes need to get employment. And once someone needs to get employment and move out, especially in service occupations, they tend to lose some of those features. 
So hold it, because the women were going to work and had to move into town and work next to people who were probably coming from all different parts of Vermont or maybe different states. And the men stayed on the farm and worked the farms. The men kept the accents and the women, it started to fade away? That's exactly right. When it comes to a rural accent, you know, staying on a farm, staying isolated or staying on this side of the mountains versus that side of the mountains will keep you talking the way you talk. But when you go and mix up with other people, a rural accent tends to fade away because you're breaking down these boundaries. You're talking with other people. I mean, we even hear this today, like if maybe you go home to visit your family for the holidays and you start to kind of slip into the old accent of of your childhood that you've trained out of yourself so that you can work in radio, it's kind of the same with other accents. You, you you talk the way that other people around you start to talk. So when you have women who maybe left a farm, they were a farmer's wife, and then went to go work in a place where they're interacting more with other people, the way they talk naturally changes. So what does the future look like for the Vermont accent? It's really, really hard to tell what the future of, of any accent looks like. This was the hardest question to answer for this episode. I talked to a handful of linguists, and they say that because you have an accent unconsciously. You don't think about it like speaking a different language. It's hard to tell what's going to happen. Interestingly, um, one famous study was done on Martha's Vineyard back in the 60s that found people who wanted to resist the gentrification of the island, even young people, talked like old timers on the vineyard, whereas people who maybe saw a future for themselves off the island didn't so much talk like that. So that was fascinating to me because it turns out that the future of accents is very personal. What does, a, what does an individual person or a generation of people feel about the place where the accent came from. Did you get made fun of as a kid? Do you want to leave this place? You can't wait to get out of this town? Or is this a place where you want to put down roots and stay a long time? All of those things, I'm told by the sociolinguists with whom I spoke for this story, all of that plays into how you decide to talk. Alex Keefe, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. We've got a link to Brave Little State at our website, nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Robin Moore, Jonathan Dyer, Jonathan McNichol, Mark Degon, and Jay Holt. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. If you want to check out more of his music, go to toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to the folks at Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.